Open Brain Candy Podcast, episode 562. I'm your host, Susie Meister. I'm the other half of this <laughs> circus, Sarah Rice. You're probably listening to this on your favorite podcast platform, but you could also watch it on our patreon.com slash brain candy if you're so inclined. And you might see hilarious things like me forgetting that we're on camera, which pretty much happens every episode. <laughs> Which, and she's wearing one of our sweatshirts and looks oh, adorable. Thank you. It's hard being a person. Yep. So ooh, cute. Ooh, ooh, ooh. She has the gray. I have the blue. They're both I love gray. this. And like, you know, I just kind of, it's like cozy. It's like hmm I got but she it. she also like, has on a vampy goth lip. Vampy goth lip. You know, for fun. I like I I just got this color in the mail today. So I got all excited about it. I had to try it on. Oh, um, that was the thing you posted. Yeah, I was super excited. Mm-hmm. And uh feels like I'm like, could I pull off like, could I have like a signature color and just like wear dark lip all the time? Do you really have that desire? Kinda. <laughs> like not all the it, time, all the time, but like kinda. You like that it makes your teeth look real white or what? <gasps> Does it? Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I think that's sort of, you know. I didn't even think about that. No, I feature. just like, I like the, I don't know. It just feels like I put it on and I'm like, ah, there she is. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I should know. This is the color of lip that I chose to get married in, too. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's like me. I'm like, I want this. I mean, Every I'm day you but... think, like, this suits me. Every day I think, wouldn't it be fun if I could just wear black lipstick all the time? <laughs> yeah. I like I say, like, that, as if that's not possible. I mean, it is, but like, not if you want to be like a, looked at as a normal human in society, like walking in the street. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, my we had a friend growing up. Oh, what was her name? She had a cool name too. Something. She was in. She lived in Italy. She was married to a man who was an Italian soccer player named Massimo Riconda. My mom would always say it like that, and I can't remember her name, Liz or Liz something. But she had a signature bubblegum pink, like hot neon pink lipstick. You would never see this woman without that lipstick color, and she even had this interesting way of putting on lipstick where she would almost like put both of her lips around it so as to create this weird like hourglass shape. Do you know what I'm talking about where it kind of pinches Mm -hmm. the... Yeah. You know what happens when you use a peeler on a carrot and you're left with two ends that have a lot of meat on them and a little really thin thing in the middle? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. That is what her lipstick always looked like. And so I have like such an image of, of this woman with her signature lip color. I'm like, that would not, you know... It'd be kind of cool to be that lady. I would apply it like a normal person. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe you need a signature technique God, what was also. Her name? She was cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Anyways. Let's learn some stuff. Let's. <laughs> I've talked about this lady before, but there's a woman who has a book coming out called Mother of Invention, which I'm very excited about. But her name is... Um, Katrine Marsal, and I subscribe to her newsletter. And every week it's just so good because what she kind of likes to do is point out the ways that women and men have very different lives because, you know, we're treated very differently. And this one was maybe my favorite ever. And it was about how somebody was asking the question, like, why are 
professional chefs, typically men, uh-huh. but like the work of cooking is usually we've, falls on we've the women. We've posed the same question right here yeah. on this very podcast. And really, I mean, I don't know if she answered that question, but what she did do was illuminate something we've all experienced and you're like, oh, it's like when you go to a good comedy show and you just are like, it's so relatable. Yes. So she was talking about how whenever there's a man cooking, it's usually on a grill, of course. Mm-hmm. And let's say you have a party and all your friends come over and your husband or your partner or whatever is on the grill. And it be, it's like the focal point. Mm-hmm. Like he is worshipped and adored and like seen as the master of his domain and it's you know, a skill and very impressive. But like when, if the woman is doing the cooking for the party, it's like, um, she has to like, just stay in the kitchen and be like all mousy. And, and like, if anyone comes in, it's like, almost like, are you okay? Do you need some help? Yes. And it's this weird, totally different treatment. It's like off to the side. Yeah. and, And it's supposed to be effortless. This is always one of those things like make a head for your party so that you can like make it look like it's so easy. It's supposed to look easy, but when men do it, it's supposed to be like he's slaving away at the grill all day and he's like hot. And and, I mean, it just makes me nuts that like we we treat each other so differently. Like a man who spends the whole party standing by the barbecue is officially the king, the very center of attention, and everybody is offering him praise and beers while listening to his monologues about meat rub. And yep. then, like I said, I was women say offering him alcohol because everybody does that. Can I get you a beer? Yeah. yeah, and like you have to wait on him because he, all of his attention must be on this art. He says male chefs are presented as artists and innovators with technical gifts and extraordinary creative skills. Women cooking at home are presented as doing something out of instinct and love. And you're just nurturing your family. It's no big deal. And it's not seen as a skill. It's seen as something that you should just inherently possess, the ability to cook and care for people. It makes me nuts. Do you think that it has anything, there's any element where if we go back to like strip away modern societal messages about gender and go back to like caveman-y times, Mm -hmm. could this be about fire more than it is about the food? Why though? That there's like, it's the center of like warmth and like the fire and it's more in like the, because it seems like they're, the guys are really into the prepping of the barbecue. Like it's, it's the, you know, got to get the coal. It seems like they're very fire. It's like related to fire more. You think? I'm just, I you think know, it's, just like a. I think it's what she said, how like when they do something, we attribute it to like, Well, it's for sure that skill, but when women do it, it's just like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Shut up about it, and like make it look pretty, and and don't ever talk about how hard it was. Make it seem like it was easy, because there's got to be like a barbecue origin story. Like, where did this? Like, what was the first barbecue? Where was the? Who was the first? When when did this kind of become? Like, what's the history of barbecue? Well, she even talked in a, a different week's newsletter about how like. That that idea of um, how convertibles were oh. manly because they're outside, 
And when the people were like, we need a roof on the car, they're like, that's feminine. Inside is feminine. Outside is masculine. So then the grilling grilling is allowed. Cooking is not. So it was like women. Okay. So you know what? It goes back to the same thing we talked about, the nurture thing. that they It's like the reject, like inside, like I need to be, ugh. I need, I, suit, I need to carry my own suitcase. Right. I need to not be it comfortable. It has to be arduous and like, you know. And could this be because they really, sorry men, are kind of wusses in the pain department and everything. <laughs> Haven't you seen all those videos of the women who get like this uh, period cramp stimulating machines or the birth stimulating machines and the men are dying and the women will like set it. They'll put it on. They'll like, okay, I'll set this to about what my cramps are. Okay. And they'll put on the men and men are like, oh God, get it off, get it off. Like, and we're like, yeah, that's every month. No problem. We do that all the that's time. That's why it annoys me when they bring up the ball thing. Oh, getting kicked in the balls is probably the same as childbirth. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah. Maybe if you got kicked in the balls for 24 hours straight. Look at my cup Give says. me, Sarah's showing me her mug. Give me a refill. The patriarchy isn't going to fight itself. That's right. It's true. It's true. And I'll take a refill of this here wine I'm drinking. Mm. Nice. As my brother says, coffee for when it's too early for alcohol. I think that you guys would love her newsletter if you want to sign up. Her name is Katrine Marcel. And I am definitely going to choose her book when it comes out for our book club. Yeah. Because it's just, we all know these things to be true, but it's helpful to like have somebody kind of describe them in, in detail. Okay. Well... Men versus women, whatever. Whether you're a man or a woman, we could all benefit from some beautiful ashes. And Definitely. You know, I, I did hear recently that women love to compliment men on their eyelashes. I've noticed that. Yeah. Yeah, men should wear some glamnetics too. Why are we having to now, just do now, this? I want people to try them on their partners yeah. and boyfriends. Yes. Well, they would have no problem doing it because glamnetic lashes... Basically do just apply themselves. If you've ever so done fake lashes or magnetic lashes, you know they are a pain in the butt. But these are not easy application and then all day hold. Just yeah, they're in place. And guys, if you see my pictures, you don't need to ask anymore. Hey, are those – if I look glamorous, this is – that the answer it's is glamnetic. yes, I'm wearing glamnetic meth. My glam neck lashes. They 100%. take like two seconds to apply. No struggle. You can use them up to 60 times. So they're eco-friendly and friendly on your wallet. Perfect fit. You can choose from all different styles, like more subtle to like super drag queen, like woo-woo. Yeah. That's what Susie loves. Yeah. 100% money back guarantee. Find out for yourself why Glamnetic Lashes are Instagram's favorite beauty hack. Go to glamnetic.com slash braincandy and enter our promo code braincandy for 30% off your order. Uh, it's only available to our listeners. That's glamnetic.com slash brain candy and enter in our promo code brain candy at checkout for 30% off. I promise you guys, these lashes literally apply themselves. I was reading an article in the Atlantic about, uh, how is the division of labor amongst people who are researchers of the division of labor? How? Oh yeah. I read that. Yeah. It was really interesting. And the different Mm -hmm. things that they do, you know. It's just saving that to. It was just like uh, surprising how they still fall into the same exact traps, and they have to make a lot of conscious kind of efforts. Like the division of labor was, they said pretty equal, but 
uh, they still fell into the societal, um, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. What do you call that? Traps like or, the stereotypes. or yeah, stereotypes. Yeah, that well, the, and the thing that I really can't see ever being undone is the thing it said about invisible labor. How like the thing about what, keeping track of like when your kid needs new clothes mm-hmm. or when your brother in law's birthday is mm-hmm. that usually falls on women. Yep. And that one researcher had a, a, oh, a nice idea of I'll send an alert. It'll send an alert every time I do something like that. But to me, that felt like an added step that that she had to do to then alert Mm -hmm. him of something, which is more labor for her. And I was like frustrated with that. I'm like, she's got to teach him in doing the thing that comes naturally to her, which is really, you know... And they did say that men can't get away with, I really liked they, they emphasized the no getting away with the, oh, she's just better at it argument. Yeah, because she does it more. You'll mm. be just as good at, at bathing the child if you do it and learn the challenges that go with that. And then guess what? You'll be good too. How does one get yeah. good at anything? You know, mm-hmm. so, but all those, we still, it's like fucking no matter what we do. How do we escape? <laughs> <laughs> we can't. This I is know. our destiny. Okay, moving on. Is it until was... we're physically bigger, maybe? Is no, it always I... going to come down to size? I don't think so. Because the size sort of defense where people say, like, if you get down to the brass tacks, mm-hmm. that men are bigger and so they have more physical power. Like, that is really no longer relevant. We're not actually doing any physical mm-hmm. stuff anymore right no he's like no, he's we, you work in a cubicle greg <laughs> like i mean doesn't matter if you're six inches yeah. taller than me right so i just feel like there's no reason to even focus on that but that's always sort of like the end of the argument well it's because men are bigger yeah yeah i don't yeah. even know fucking cubicle, fucking cubicle. okay <laughs> my brother sent me this link to a story about a small community in Costa Rica where a a significant portion of the population of males are born um, without penises until they're 12. So the... They're... they're, What? What do you... They're born with the XY chromosomes. So, like, genetically, anatomically, they are male um but their penis and balls i guess start don't come out okay. of their body until 12 and they call them the guivadoses which i guess means like 12 penis or something and um they are deficient in an enzyme called okay. the 5 alpha reductase which normally converts testosterone into like the the type of testosterone that makes a penis in utero, like okay, typically so that, it doesn't stim- get stimulated until they basically be- reach like puberty. Yeah, the, what? The this is missing, crazy. Yeah, like they didn't have this enzyme, so even though they had testosterone, it didn't like ignite yeah. or trigger that process. But then when they hit puberty and then they get another batch of that testosterone, then the penis it is grows. like okay. What? Isn't this? 
very fascinating. I have so many follow-up questions. Okay, let me tell you the rest okay. and then we'll see if they're answered. Um, Gosh. This d- deficiency seems to be genetic, a genetic condition, quite common um, a part of Dominican Republic, but vanishingly rare elsewhere. Um, they appear female when they're born. It's not just that they don't have this penis yet. Well, because that's, that's what it, all, it is before. Yeah. They say, like, they, doctors, the people, that's what we've, right? Yeah. And then they also have small prostates. Um, and it, like, studying these people helped them solve the problem. You know how when men get older, the, there's a risk of having an enlarged prostate, yes. which is a problem. And they realized that this enzyme oh, had something to do with it. Too much of it. And then it keeps growing. Yeah. And, Oh my yeah. gosh! So Fucking science helpful. is the coolest and the weirdest, and we don't know anything. <laughs> and then the other thing that says this is awesome. Um, despite being brought up as girls, almost all showed strong heterosexual preferences. So they're um, definite. Well, I mean, not definite, but they have. It just shows like the brain is male. Yeah, but it says that hormones in the womb matter more than rearing when it comes to your sexual orientation. Isn't this bonkers? Oh, for sure. Because you are born that way. Right. Duh. You can't make somebody gay. It must be a very strange experience, though, because, you know, let's say what we could compare it to is just that when you hit puberty and your breasts grow. Yeah. But, like, the breasts were there. Like, we had an awareness of our breasts (sighs) before that because of nipples, at least. Yeah. But for them, there's just like no... It's a whole different care process too. You know how they say that though, when you're in utero, everybody has like vagina. Correct. And then the the clitoris clitoris or whatever grows. So here's why I'm confused by Uh that. Okay. In the female body, the the pee hole Mm -hmm. is not on your clitoris. Right. But when a penis grows, it has a pee hole at the end of it. So... I wish you, if you're watching this, I just hope you're enjoying Sarah's like, hand motion. Yeah. The, we got, yeah, where, I need to I don't see, get it. I need to see a time lapse. Yeah, because why doesn't our, why doesn't our pee hole exist on our clitoris, if, according to that? Yeah, time lapse of genital growth yeah, uh-huh. in, in utero. In utero. Yeah, because, okay, for these guys, the guava doses, where is their pee hole until they're 12? Is it yeah, where mine is? The fact that I have to type in of humans is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay, genital, wow. I, can't, I don't know if I can have 12 minutes in, in me. That's the whole thing. This is, that's... that's Oh, you mean I can't just Google this and find out the answer in 10 get, seconds? Get in two seconds, right. Oh, yeah. Okay. The development of gonads. Mm-hmm. Yes. It talked okay. about those gonads. Yeah. That is really interesting that it is... Because I'm trying to... I feel like I, I am somebody who paid attention in those classes, has taken those classes... It's a big part of like sex therapy is just learning 
the parts What's and how going everything on? works so that yeah. you can then help people know about those things because that's a lot of it, just education. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you what that looks like. Yeah. Well, if any of you listening have the answer, you let me know. Um, in the meantime... There's no normals. If you're, if you're thinking about sex and, you know, all those feelings, maybe Dipsy can help you get in the mood. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter you know what, what you got. <laughs> it does not matter what you got. Dipsy is a great service that will tell you sexy stories so that you can either be soothed to sleep maybe, have super sweet dreams, or get revved up to be with your partner or to be with yourself. I mean... What is not to love about that? You go on Dipsy, you take a little quiz and say what gets you in the mood. And then they'll suggest stories for you to listen to um, so you can explore your fantasies in a safe and, you know, shame-free kind of way. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no shame. Yeah, I think that's so important is sort of just tapping into Ooh, you want to try something new? There you go. Yeah. You could even, yeah, experiment with things. Maybe you're like, am I into this? Am I not? And it could get you more comfortable with those feelings. For our listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial. When you go to dipsystories.com slash brain candy, that's 30 days of full access for free. When you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash brain candy, dipsystories.com slash brain candy. Okay, moving on. That's my next topic here. Let me pull up my notes. Okay. I did watch... Did I talk about how I watched um, the, a short film on New York Times about the kids... I think I did. The kid that tried out for Anakin Skywalker. Did we talk about oh, that? Wait, tried out or was Anakin yeah, Skywalker? Yeah, tried, tried out. Okay. Because you know I know that kid. In real life? Anakin Skywalker, I used to babysit him. He was my little brother's best friend. And now he was... And then he was schizophrenic. Yeah, Sarah. Yeah, how have we how have we never talked about this? Jake I cannot believe. Yeah, Jake Lloyd was yep. the guy that. Yeah, I used to right, babysit so- him and his little sister. <sighs> that is insane. Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. You are so weird. He lived. He lived in this neighbor, right? A few houses down, a few a few blocks away from where I am right now. Wow. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Huh? Are you still friends? No, because they weren't. Because after, I mean, it was a very sad story. But he yeah, started. Yeah, the kid to, that became Anakin yes. since has had trouble with the law, and then more yeah. recently, well, he's mental said, health issues. Yeah, yeah. Now they've said he was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia, mm-hmm. and oh, so he's nice. like being cared for by his parents. But like, I can't believe that. Mm-hmm. It was at a, It was right after he did the did the film. I would say when he was about. <sighs> My bro- they lost touch. They stopped. He kind of pull- isolated because he had to. Did you know him when, like, B- before? When act- and- yes, before no. and after. What before was he like after? after? He uh, pulled. Well, the thing that was really traumatized. It was really messed up, Susie. This is a, this is <sighs> people who are crazy freaking Star Wars fans didn't approve of him as Anakin Skywalker. They were very judgmental of his acting, said he wasn't 
good in the like they were they basically like trolled him they and were cruel they were cruel to him and i think that he couldn't handle that as not i think i know that he could not handle it as a little 12 year old 13 year old he was were oh, you able so to notice like like a shift just yes. in that period yes where he seemed stopped didn't like well he started to go to school by like as the he would go to school on set like he had a set teacher and everything like that yeah and, you know, we were all kids. I feel like everybody in – so many people in my neighborhood had parents in the film industry. So a lot of us grew up on yeah. set and a lot of us, like, you know, it was not – it was a very – you know, yeah. Amanda Bynes was, lived – she was right there too. It's like there's oh, so I many know. people, right? <laughs> so Sarah's, Sarah's enemy. Well, not anymore. And now not it's anymore. interesting that they both ha- have skits. Yes. Like it's really – yeah. You know these these really talented childhood actors. Very, ta- I mean, Jake was so he was like an adult in a little kid's body. He was so mm-hmm. talented, and you could ask him to do a like he just felt it. I would watch him practice. I remember he was practicing for I want to say an Oreo commercial, and it was like, look, this guy is like really something. Sarah, your life is insane. I mean, it just, it just is. Okay. Well, I highly recommend this. this Yeah, I know this is not what you were talking about. Well, it's kind of related because New York Times did a short film um, about the, the, one of the other finalists for the Anakin Skywalker role. They they narrowed it down to three kids. And um, so this kid was like the second, you know, runner up basically. And he talked about what it was like to audition, what it was like to be narrowed down to the three and then going to um, George Lucas's yeah. Skywalker Ranch mm-hmm. and George mm-hmm. Lucas was there. And you, they showed the footage from all three of their final auditions and them meeting Natalie Portman and what that would feel like to know that like if you nail this, your whole life will be in, in wow. your mind made, right? You're going to be set <sighs> for life. But oh, the pressure I have of that. like an upset stomach. Like I'm, I'm, oh, yeah. thinking it just, it's just giving me anxiety. Well, Sarah and I, a few episodes ago said we wanted, we're going to make this book, um, for children called be careful what you wish for. And that's what it, this made me think of because we, like Sarah said, Jake Lloyd, the guy that became Anakin. I mean, it, I, I think you could argue that it really had a very terrible effect terrible on his life. Terrible effect on his life. And so this, watching the guy that didn't get it and how grounded he is, how funny oh. he is, how happy he is. But at the time, oh, he thought that he got the worst deal ever. Is right? this not an argument, what's good, what's bad? Well, yes. And I really do hate that fable. I know. Or whatever you want to call it. I know. It's but my it is one. true yeah. that when you think something's terrible news, it may not be. And you it's may not, never know. You may never know what would have been oh, and how you benefited but my heart just hurts thinking of that poor kid and it does mm. make you question just having children be employed at that age and what is expected of them and it is ridiculous i think that it might okay um i'm reading this book on psychedelics and mushrooms and how it uh affects like consciousness and depression all these kind of things and they talk about how 
doing uh, LSD or mushrooms if you are predisposed or, or have a, uh, a likelihood of schizophrenia is not good because it can trigger an early uh, schizophrenic onset. episode. Oh. They also said, yeah, like early on, like triggered the first episode. And it's kind of like once once you trigger it, then it is re- then it keeps happening. Yeah. Um. So they'd also said in the next chapter or the next paragraph or whatever that a whole bunch of other things can trigger that, like traumatic incidences and these things that like you know, basically trauma. And there's a whole bunch of things that can't, that if you basically expose the brain to like too much, too fast, I think is just in life in what, that if you are predisposed to, to schizophrenia, this is again, theories, this is piecing Mm -hmm. together things from this book that is well studied and all that and you know just kind of looking at like these people that we know these case studies of these young people who have been in a way very vulnerable Mm -hmm. in a way that we don't necessarily look at as vulnerable Mm -hmm. because it feels like they're celebrities or they're like and that that could be a trauma significant enough to trigger to to hit that threshold for schizophrenia starting earlier yeah. than maybe it would that's my well, that's the thing it makes total sense because okay. that's even how i feel when we complain or 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 bring to light our criticisms about reality tv production is everyone a lot of people really would love to do what we'd gotten to do so mm-hmm. it reads as being ungrateful and um, people feel that way about being in Hollywood, being on in Star Wars. That's seen as the Holy Grail. Right. So yeah. they're not quick to be sympathetic right. about it. Right. Um, and, and these stories, these kind of extreme stories like this, like Amanda Bynes, like Jake Lloyd, I think really highlight that and show this is what happens. And then I... I I know because I talked, I remember the conversation sitting there listening to his mom talk to my mom about the messages, the things that the fans were saying and the way that he almost had to like go to Lucas Ranch to escape from all that. And like, oh, just like so sad. Would you ever consider reaching out? No. I always like insert myself where I'm not wanted. So like I totally would have already by now like, hey, I'm sorry. But you don't want to do that. Yeah, more because I don't know why either. Like, Well, because you're normal. Yeah, like it, I think and I because I, I, I wouldn't know where to go from there, you know. Well, would I just wonder, like, if maybe people like that crave people Nor- they knew right. beforehand? Right. I don't know. Maybe not. right maybe because like- I think about oh, and I think about him and my brother. They probably would get along now and like yeah. be like they could hang out. Maybe he needs some support. Yeah, I'll tell well, Jordan that he needs to hit up Jake. Yeah, tell him if you need uh, support, and don't we all? 
Um, there's a wonderful company called Crowd Health um, that wants to kind of take out the garbage uh, from medical expenses and the healthcare nonsense everyone has to deal with. Nonsense. Um, it isn't health insurance, but it's a better way to pay for medical expenses. And it's a whole community and you can save hundreds of dollars monthly and put thousands of dollars back in your pocket. Basically, 100% of your monthly membership to Crowd Health pays for your actual healthcare costs. Um, and then you help the whole Crowd Health community stay healthy while keeping more money in your pocket. Um, you can get virtual care anytime, anywhere, scan bills and throw them away. Crowd Health will take it from there. It's really convenient service. And especially if you are like me and, you know, you're sourcing your health care as a oh, business right. owner, all that stuff. And me too. Even therapists. Yes. Yeah. You're doing our own thing out here, believe it or not. Crowd Health is able to offer amazing prices because of its community of health conscious members. But for a limited time, our listeners get their first month free. And after you've been a member, Crowd Health will include a fitness wearable that's 30 days to try risk free plus the fitness wearable. Just go to joincrowdhealth.com slash fit and enter code brain candy at sign up. That's joincrowdhealth.com slash fit promo code brain candy. Um, Crowd Health is not health insurance. A community-powered alternative terms and conditions may apply. Very cool. So many cool companies these days. Okay. Um, my, my next topic is, um, oh, there was this debate, kind of, New York Times. It was about uh, these tattoos that you can get in Brooklyn. This, com- this tattoo company made one that's 15 months, up to 15 oh, months at last. And then I'm it, into you this. And it dissolves. Okay. I know People, tattoo artists aren't. So, yeah. So these tattoos, they look real, they behave real, but then over the a year, year and a half, they fade. And a lot of people are like, that that defeats the purpose. It's supposed Those to be about people just get just fucking chill. Okay. Why do they like that? Because they think it's like a, some crazy badge of honor to like, who cares? As somebody who has been, I feel like I'm heavily enough tattooed. To make sweeping judgments about ta- people who are tattooed, right? <laughs> yes. So yeah. I think I'm like annoyed by these tattooed people who are like tattoo purists, you know. And and I've had the like sacred tattoo, you know. I I am all about the ceremony and the act of getting tattooed. I just feel like if you think that the most important thing about your tattoo is it's permanence. It's permanence and that somehow like – and also fucking can it and my like mind your own business because like if where's, – where's my book here? This is my favorite. The Four Agreements right here. What is number uh, – uh, nothing others do is because of you. What others say or do is a projection of their own reality, their own dream. When you're immune to the opinions and actions of others, you won't be the victim of needless suffering. If they want to get 15 month tattoos, let them. How's that affect your tattoo p- process? It's insane. It's like, crazy. Um, it kind of reminds me. I mean, so I know it like, seems unrelated, but when people are against abortion, it to me feels the same way. Don't get one then. Then don't get one. Right. Like, but shut up about whether right. somebody else does. Right. 
Um, Whenever my ex, I could just say Landon, you know who I'm talking about. Whenever Landon would say, I don't really like that skirt or whatever he would say, I'd be like, well, good thing you don't have to wear it. Yeah. (laughs) It's real simple. My favorite comeback after I, you know, learned how to not be sad and like take it personally. (laughs) Right. Right. By the way, he's getting married. What? That's right. Oh my God. We're going to have to talk about this after we're done (laughs) doing our job. (laughs) Oh, and yeah. gee. I'm like, I'm, I feel like no way about it either. Okay. Yeah. My God. Yeah. We'll have to talk about it. Okay. I, I feel, I feel things. Susie feels things. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. I just find it very strange when, you know, you have a personal feeling about tattoos or anything else. And then you think it's some sort of prescription for everybody. And why I, it's so stupid. And don't you, I, I feel like the more tattoos I got at different stages of my life and the more I, you know, learned about tattoos and c- tattoo culture and things like that, the more I, I would almost kind of like a t- semi-permanent one. Like I'm into the idea. I would get a 15 month one. Yeah, I feel like I think- the thing that I regret the most about my tattoos is that I can't like change them up and have different ones and who the fuck yeah. cares? Well, and I also feel like if you want to maybe test it and see if you yes. love it and then you can get the permanent That's one. That's the biggest want. thing. Definitely yeah. do that. Yeah. I wish I did that. Right. So stupid. Stupid. I think it's the same. You know who these people are? They're the same exact people who, when you ask them if a tattoo hurts, they say, oh, no. They say no. Yeah, or some th- something like, oh, it's part of the process. Have some stupid answer. You know what I say every time somebody asks me that? Fuck yeah, it hurts. It's like the worst pain ever. In fact, I went and got one recently when I was in Thailand and he started and I was like, oh my God, you should probably stop. I can't believe I ever did this. And I, I say it exactly like that with all of that. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm glad you asked. Honest. Yeah, because and I'm, and then I followed up with, and anybody who says otherwise is lying to you and trying to be a tough, tough guy. Well, because I have had there? them done in all the mo- armpit check, elbow check, middle uh, uh uh hip bone check, lower back check, back of the neck check, spinal column check. Oh, that one I felt everywhere in my body. That well, was the I, weirdest one. When I know. Like, touching one place, you, you feel. What hurts the worst, but which one hurt the least? Oh, anywhere it's real fatty, like... Like a tummy or, um, you know, where it's mostly just, like, soft. Yeah, I think, like... Oh, no, the back... Fuck, where... That You're like, too. nope, that hurt, too. Oh, it's like I'm touching <laughs> everywhere, and I'm like, nope, real bad. Um, God, every place I'm looking at hurt. Oh, my God. There's no place that didn't... That was... I think surprisingly my hips were the least painful and I, would I not have thought only that. think that is because of the amount of waxing I had done in that area. Oh. Because it was very low You're on like them. Desensitized. I, for real. I do think mm. that that was the only, because it's the only place I could think of that didn't feel, or he was super hot, the tattooers, and I was like trying to. One or the other. Yeah. You know what? The one under my arm, I sort of kind of like fell asleep towards the end of. I was like in like a wow. daze and I just kind of like closed my eyes and, and yeah, underneath my arm. 
We're going to go with that as the least painful. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but they also. Okay. Next, um, did you up. read about how girls are developing ticks because of watching too many Tourette's TikToks? Oh, I I I love these th- these kind of th- I mean I don't love that this is happening but yeah. this Susie Susie yeah. Susie yes. you always yeah. come with the best stories it's just amazing <laughs> thank you this tells us so much mhm you have to look at what this is really doing that that in a way these things are contagious yeah well this is that woman I interviewed last month Suzanne O'Sullivan with her book Sleeping Beauties, it was about that and how the real problem is the way that we think psychosomatic means not real. Right. It's real. It's just coming from somewhere than a typical disease. Ah, it all starts with our thoughts. Yeah, like they're not faking it. No. And they the funny thing is though, they, they go to the doctor and they have all these symptoms of like ticks or whatever, and a lot of them kept saying beans. What? And I don't I don't know if there's the, some there's girl, gotta be somebody who does did Maybe that. the Tourette's girl on TikTok yeah. that's her tick is that she says beans. I don't know. But like why else would they all be why saying else? beans? Why else? That's that's the only reason. I'm interested. Anyway. It's okay. So, few questions. Yeah. Is it or just things to kind of like mm, chew, chew over? Think about. Mm-hmm. God, I want to talk about this all day. Like, Why this are is, you so into it? I don't it? know because, like, it 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 shows that we are that okay. That none of these girls, as teenagers, were very easily manipulated because we don't have that developed prefrontal cortex that's able to like mm-hmm. make the good decision. We're more impulsive. We're more likely to like you know. So we're very like susceptible to these kind of things. None of yeah. these girls are. First of all, I think it's interesting that it's women. That's women. Like, is that just because women are watching ASMR more? That I have questions about that. And, um, okay. So at this time where they're very vulnerable or susceptible, they're not going in with the intention of becoming influenced. They're not mm-hmm. looking at this saying. I would like to be like her. That it just happens because of mirror neurons in the brain, because of all, who know, you know, all these things. Well, not mm-hmm. people do know uh, that. Uh, and the fact that it can develop so intensely to the point where, like, I, I talked to clients about this, that what we, and because of the book Habit, I really, that, like got a firm idea of the things that we want to do and what our brain wants to do are two different things. I want to go to the gym, but I'm reinforcing sitting on the couch and eating chocolate chips. And my brain's like, we ain't going to the gym. And actually you're doing exactly what you should be doing because this is what feels good. And this is what you keep reinforcing. Reward, 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 reward. So they're rewarding themselves. Like it's so, we're so easily, we so easily fall into these traps and, and, we think that that if we can so easily fall into them, we can also so easily get ourselves out of them. 
Yeah. And if it's so easy to put the brain into that place, then just all, we, all it needs is a little, instead of being on autopilot, we go, oh, let me take over the reins and let me like correct this thought and let me go, actually, hmm, let me change what I'm watching. Let me change the channel. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like I described it as a, uh, you know, thoughts. We have between 50 to 60,000 of them a day and the majority of them we're not even aware of. It's kind of like opening up browsers or different wet mm. screens or you know, browsers. I think that's it on your, I know more about the brain than I do about the stupid like computer. Tabs. Yes, tabs, thank you, on your computer. And you've got like random music playing in the background and you, you've got a thousand tabs open, 50,000 tabs open. You're not going to be able to find that music. And that music can be what's driving you crazy, but you don't know where it's coming from. It could be playing in the background. Maybe you've just gotten used to it because it's been open the whole time. Also, if you had one open that was saying things like, ugh, you're a loser, you're terrible, as you were trying to focus on another window come on get me all so that's why i get all excited because this highlight and i love when we can use these kind of things as examples to really you know it's just like a different way of showing somebody you know some people say i'm like oh i'm an audio learner i'm a visual learner i need to write something that like it feels like another way that it, for some people it clicks through hearing it this way for so, so i love all the different ways that we can learn about how our brain is on fucking autopilot the end well i mean even just when i when you look at how many people are genuinely healed at like healing uh christian events um it's not that it's not real or fraudulent necessarily. There are a lot of things that can be undone with just the belief that it will be. It's, it's so crazy. I was in this workshop, this, um, the same one for dissociative, uh, dissociative identity disorder. And the woman was, who ran it, uh, Robin Shapiro is her name. She's written a whole bunch of books. She's fantastic. Yeah, she's famous. Uh, she did, She said, does anybody in here have, has, everybody, has anybody experienced multi-chemical sensitivity? And I was like, absolutely, that would be me. Like I will feel like, and, and it was, it's especially strong. I know it's psychosomatic because it's especially strong when I'm anxious and when I'm stressed about something, it'll come up as like dot, like like hives. Like I'll get out of the shower and there'll be hives everywhere or there'll be like, like I thought, I was like, oh my God, it's got to be mites from my dog. Like it's got to be something. No. No, it's not. And so yeah. she was like, oh, I can fix this. I can fix this real quick. And so she like went into my brain and did a little like back and forth waving her hand stuff and then talked to me and then had me do things like, you know, just like basically she distracts your brain while she talks to you and she, and then gives you instructions on, on using your imagination. And I knew it was going to work. Cause like I'm susceptible to hypnosis and all this shit. And she said, okay, I want you to imagine your brain, the place your, your, cause basically what it is, is an overactive immune system. She said, I want you to imagine your immune system like a, um, uh, like a control center for like a lab or like a, you know, in like a science, like, you know, I, I imagine it like Chernobyl, like that was what I saw in my head. And like, there's wires connecting everywhere. And, you know, and she said, okay, now there's a guy who works in there and give him a name and uh, what does he look like mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And she, he was like, okay, he's got all these wires connected to 
places that are like, you know, pain receptors, whatever, and it's overworking. I want you to go in there and show him what are the actual real, what's real pain? What's the real message? What's the real immune, immune response? And what's, what, what is like extra wires that are, are connected, but what do we need to disconnect? And I had to visually go in and disconnect all those wires. I'm telling you, I have never had a shower where I got out of the shower and didn't feel like I was covered in hives or like allergic to something. You know I, how I am. I'm like, I can't use this. I'm allergic to all these fragrances. Mm-hmm. Not a problem. I have to go, I have to do maintenance on it because it, it's not just like you do it and it's fixed. You have mm-hmm. to continuously tr- like keep training your brain or it does that thing like we learned in the habit book where it defaults to the old circuitry. But holy crap, I'd say it's gone from being an 8 out of 10 in severity to a 4 out of 10. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, and I was going to say to you, please don't watch Tourette's TikToks because this totally could happen to you. For sure. You're just one of those people. Yeah, I'm highly susceptible to these things. Like I hang out with somebody and I start their internal monologue or like I start my internal monologue is their accent, their yeah. So yeah, yeah I weird. totally. So what happened to these girls? Did they end up like not? Well, now that they figured out, yeah, they said it's treatable. I mean, it's the same thing that you're saying. Where like, first of all, they got to go off social media. <laughs> like they can't be exposed to this stuff, and like eventually it'll go away. But I mean, people. Do, the pro- part of the problem is people don't understand what this is, and and I'm sure people think they're faking or that it's like. If you crazy. were the parent of one of those two, I would be like, oh, for Pete's sake. I'd be like, Bob Newhart, stop it. Right, stop it. <laughs> I think about how Fuck I was beans. as a teenager, too. Right. I was like, everything was perfect. <laughs> Probably was wearing the same color lipstick then. Um, okay, I have one more thing that I want to go over, and then I have a guest. But, okay, this was in the New York Times is so fun for me. I don't know. I just think it's such a great idea. Um, If you're not familiar with Latin America and Colombia and other cultures in that area, they tend to have, you know, pretty traditional gender Mm -hmm. roles. And there's stereotypically, at least, a lot of um, machismo Mm -hmm. type of values. Mm -hmm. And some uh, one of the people, I think it was a mayor of a town in Colombia, started a basically an anti-machismo hotline called the Calm Line, so that men could call when they're feeling like aggressive towards women, oh. um, and they maybe got in a fight this. with their wife. Yeah, and they can talk to a psychologist about oh. what's going on and learn how to deal with it in a way that isn't so macho and sort of like the dominant oh male. my god that makes my heart feel so good yeah that like makes I mean, like me teary-eyed i don't just know why the fact that just the fact that they get like about 12 calls a day it's not like they're overloaded well, that with calls. is 12 women that you could have saved that's 12 little kids that could maybe have a different kind of dad that comes yeah. home who, mm-hmm. who responds in a different way oh yeah oh that's very promising. Yeah, that they and, and it did mention it says the callers are mostly cisgender, but sometimes they're transgender and they frequently phone in because they're struggling with jealousy. 
So like their partner maybe likes somebody else or like flirted or something and they're just so mad and they want to like express it, but they don't want to be violent or abusive anyway. So they're learning these techniques on how to cope with this power structure and also gender. That's um, even interesting, interesting information to, to get about what it is. Yes. Because I, as a therapist have worked in communities where that has been something that's been heavily discussed or like brought up and, and, you know, and issue that we've worked on in therapy and understanding motivations behind it, that it's base, it's rooted in like a passion, I feel like can help with maybe some shame around those. Yeah. Cause think about like what jealousy reactions. really is. Yeah. It's feeling, it's really feeling like you're not enough. Mm. I mean, yeah. essentially that, yeah. that your partner <gasps> yeah. thinks somebody else is more desirable in some way. And oh. so... That can trigger those feelings of like, you know, like beating your chest. (laughs) I'll prove to you that I'm strong and tough or whatever. But then can become really scary in some men. Absolutely. Oh, that's that's a really, that's, that makes total sense. Isn't that cool though? Yes. I think that's really, well, and he sounds like a good guy. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Right, I don't know what. I hope um, he's a good. I hope he's not. (sighs) Right, (laughs) right. That could go either way. Yeah, it Um, really does sometimes. We're gonna. Okay, fingers crossed. Um. Okay, now you guys know how I feel about the microbiome, and now we're learning about the connection between your gut microbiome health and type two diabetes. Yes. And pendulum glucose control is the first and only medical probiotic that's designed to manage A1C and blood glucose levels through this the health of your important. microbiome. I know. I'm I'm excited about all of the science they're doing with the biome because like we kind of like didn't know until we recently yeah. what was going and on. I know with a all lot these. of people who struggle with these issues. Yeah, and so this um pendulum well, so they talk about how people with type two diabetes lose the gut bacteria that help you digest fiber and manage your blood glucose levels. So um, for those people, often like diet and exercise aren't enough to manage it. So pendulum is a great way for you to add a little boost. Mine always comes back saying that I'm right on the border. Really? Yep. And they always ask me if diabetes runs in my family. Does it? No. I think my aunt's had one one time, but all, so I am, I am fully like now as a, you know, an adult who's like, Oh shit! I gotta like actually take care of this I know, body. It's the worst. Like you know, it's not just like again on autopilot. I gotta like actually monitor its levels. These are really good things to know about. I am loving They're this. Very good. I'm Tell loving it too. You can take control of your glucose levels today. Try Pendulum Glucose Control for 90 days. If you're not satisfied with your levels, you get your money back. Visit PendulumLife.com to find out more and use promo code Brain Candy. You'll get 20 percent off your first bottle um, of membership. That's P E N D U L U M. L, comma, life, L-I-F-E dot com, promo code brain candy. So it's pendulumlife.com. Um, okay, so our guest today is Julie Rogers. Sarah will remember last month, or no, wait a minute. I'm trying to remember. Did, did we talk about Julie Rogers? She is the woman who wrote Out Love about gay conversion therapy. 
Because oh, she was in we Pray were, Away. Yes. <gasps> yes, we did. You Doc know what? Club. We didn't talk about it on here. We talked about it in Documentary Club. In Documentary Club, yes. Yes. So if you've seen Netflix's Pray Away, you've seen Julie Rogers. She yes, was yes, somebody yes. who oh like, she worked for these gay conversion therapy yes. people and oh she is a lesbian and she tried to convince people that she, yes, is gay, but like she was, she's a Christian and so she was going to be celibate and it was trying to get people to get on board with this idea. And anyway, her book is great. It's out love a queer survival story and you know she talks about what it's really like to go through the program and try to change your attractions or at least change your behaviors to reflect your Mm. faith and religiosity and how painful and traumatizing that is um and it's very moving and Mm. i think in addition to the difficulties with gay conversion therapy, for me, what is so tragic is how usually the families, you know, shun these people yeah. and how, like, your own flesh and blood thinks you're going to hell because you love It's somebody. like choosing to accept yourself or be accepted by others. And that right. is a really hard thing. Yeah. So you should watch Pray Away. On Netflix, it's a fantastic documentary, but also read her book, Out Love. Um, and today I talked to her about, you know, what what is her faith like now? Is she a believer? Um, how does she reconcile any kind of faith or spirituality with her um, identity as a queer woman? And also just sort of what it's like to be in that gay conversion therapy world, which, by the way, should be outlawed, especially oh, for kids. Yes. Um, Everywhere. Welcome to the show. Oh, I can't wait. Julie. Julie Rogers. I harassed her into coming on Brain Candy Podcast. Thanks for coming on. Ah, so good to be here, Susie. So you wrote this phenomenal book, Out Love, A Queer Christian Survival Story. First of all, congratulations. How the heck do you feel about being a very fancy writer? (laughs) Uh, I think maybe it's more like I'm a professional gay. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, people know I'm gay before they know my name. Um, but overall I feel vulnerable, a little exposed and also like incredibly grateful for the number of people who I've heard from who are saying things like, I feel so seen and this gives me a sense of hope and possibility or I'm asking new questions now. Like just the best things you could possibly hear when you pour your whole heart into a book and share it with the world. So um, I feel all those different things. Was writing the book like healing? People always say it is, but then, or is it just like more trauma or both? Both. It was an opportunity to do a lot of work. I got, I got an amazing therapist who's been like doing therapy longer than I've been alive and sweet Charlotte walked me through a lot of healing. I would say doing like a lot of the press interviews have felt more like re-traumatizing in ways because they just kind of a lot of times will go for the most like intense traumatic moments in the book without being able to really step back and see the whole human story happening. So it's a mixed bag. 
I was just uh, interviewing Kate Bowler, who was, she is a, an author as well, but she had uh, ter- has terminal cancer. And she said that some interviewers will just be like, so is cancer going to be the thing that kills you? Like, they just have no sense that you're a real person yeah. who went through really hard things. Do you get that sense that they just can't grasp that part? I think if we sat down for coffee or drinks, they would be able to because they're really nuanced, thoughtful people. I just think our media now is so driven by clicks and clicks are driven by the sensational. And so they're just kind of, they've been formed now in that context that makes them go for the most outrageous, shocking information. And unfortunately, it's probably hard for them to navigate that uh, tension. Your book is, of course, fantastic for um, queer folks, but I felt very connected to it because I grew up in the same tradition as you. Um, And even though I don't happen to be queer, you know, trauma can exist in other ways in those environments. What do you think that it is about the tradition in which you grew up that can make it so judgmental when that really isn't how? Jesus lived, for example. I have never had two cats show up either. Julie, I'm giddy. I'm giddy. If you're just listening to these people, we had two cats show up and Julie is a big fan of cats. So this just feels right. Anyway, like what the heck is it about evangelicalism that makes it so prone to that kind of trauma? Sadly, I think evangelicalism is formed, like any of us, when we come to something like the Bible, or our religious texts, we are understanding those like in many ways more from our cultural assumptions, like the assumptions we bring to it. And I think when you step back and look at evangelicalism, you know, they might think, oh, I just am biblical. And there's a sense in which they might be. And also their understanding of the Bible has been formed by uh, communities that have proven themselves over and over to prioritize and protect and promote primarily men, white people, straight cis people. There's a certain kinds of people that they continue to sort of put in positions of power. So that's really forming then the local pastor, the mom of the kid who comes out to them. And it leads them to believe that they're following Jesus by doing what those leaders say when, no, it's really more what James Dobson or Jerry Falwell said, you know? Mm -hmm. When you were, I mean, you talk about your experience as growing up in this tradition, but like internally, did you feel at that time that you fit in to the culture and you, you felt comfortable within it? There were ways in which I did broadly um, you know, I could go to summer camp and knew all the things to say and believed so many of those things deeply. And also I never felt like one of the girls. I always felt kind of like more one of the guys and we just was knew I was different on a basic level of gender and sexuality. So there was always this, this tension of like, I don't fit into what they would have called biblical femininity And that led to like a deep sense of insecurity and eventually a real sense of shame around that. I've never heard that phrase. Was that actually used? Totally. Like gender norms, like biblical masculinity and biblical femininity were like a big deal in my sort of Southern Baptist circles in Texas. Mm -hmm. And it was like a moral thing. Like, yeah. 
your you outline your relationship with your family in the book and the ways in which it's difficult because of who you are. When did that sort of materialize for you in terms of your awareness of it? Was it not till you sort of fully came out or was it earlier? There were tensions with my family from the time I started writing my book about like how I came out to my family when I was 16 years old. And at that point, there were immediate tensions. Um, My mom felt a deep sense of shame and fear. My oldest brother told me he hoped I wouldn't choose to be gay because he wanted me to be able to come around his kids as they grew up. So clearly there was the beginning of like significant tension Yeah. As long as I was trying to become straight or live like a straight looking life, they would let me come around. And there was a sense in which we could coexist, even if they, I felt like they thought I was kind of gross and embarrassing. It wasn't until I came out as fully affirming that uh, we no longer saw each other and I was no longer like at holidays or things like that. Okay. In your, in their heart of hearts, do you think they truly still at this moment believe you're choosing this? I think they would say I'm not choosing these attractions, but I'm choosing to act on them by dating women, marrying a woman, sleeping with women, etc. And they're not considering the consequences of belief, of teaching that says the way in which I'm wired to love, something that I experience every single day of my life, like telling me that that's sinful and that it's uh, sick and something that needs to be suppressed, like that just leads to absolute self-hatred and despair. And so I think they're just don't, it's not so simple as like, well, I choose not to steal on a given day. So you can choose not to act out on your attractions for women. Um, I just don't, yeah. It just feels like, and I'm like putting it all on you. You have to answer all my questions about this entire group of people that drive me crazy. <laughs> no, it's but wild though. It is because it feels like on one hand, they're saying, I choose not to steal. So you should choose not to be gay yet. So they're equating them yet. They don't because it pu- it's put into this other category of a lifestyle that makes it like they can't even be near you without feeling compromised. Yeah, Totally. So in a way they equate them and then in another way they make it so much bigger than a typical quote sin. And I'm not calling it that myself. Yeah. I mean, my mom would always say like homosexuality is the worst sin because it's like a lifestyle people choose rather than a moment of sin from which you could repent. So if I murdered somebody, at least I could repent and receive forgiveness. But how can I repent for something that I am every day of my life? Right. It's just so it's really it's no wonder that, you know, um, youth who are sort of subjected to that kind of teaching through conversion therapy and things like that are more than twice as likely to attempt suicide in the last year. Like this just leads to despair. Do you think that there have been any shifts theologically within the more conservative um, traditions or do you think things are staying just as they were? Both a little bit. I think there are a lot more individual hearts and minds changing 
and people are being moved now that they get to see people like me, like other queer Christians who are out on the internet. It's like, we used to come out and we would be excommunicated from our churches and then they never heard from us again. They just heard like really scary things about us. Yeah. Now they get to stay in touch, see us and be like, oh, wow, they're actually like kind of normal. And like, I like them to be a mentor to my kids and things like that. On the other hand, I think there's still, as we see in just the overall systems of conservative Christianity, a lot of sort of digging in their heels. And in the same way that there will always be churches who believe like when, you know, men were appointed by God to be the authority in the church and the home and essentially don't believe in women's equality, there are always going to be churches who believe that being gay is a sin. And so I don't think it's like going to just completely change, but I think that there's more hope now that if a teenager comes out as trans to their mom, that their mom might stumble on to sort of community Christian communities who are going to encourage her to celebrate and delight in her kid uh, rather than like what my mom did, which is send me to conversion therapy. There was a period of time wherein you acknowledged that you had same-sex attraction and you even maybe said, identified that you were a lesbian, but you were celibate. And that was motivated by a belief that that was less, it wasn't God's best or what, what was wanted from you. Intellectually, what did you think made it sinful? Because I always feel like with sin, there's almost always um, someone that gets hurt by it. But with gayness, nobody is necessarily being hurt. And I wonder how intellectually that makes sense to them. It's a sin without a victim. That's a great question. I was struggling with the fact that I felt like we weren't broken, that there were many ways in which queer people were actually like a blessing and a gift and like showed different parts of God's image that, you know, straight folks don't. And that it was really beautiful. I was really fixated on the like penis vagina thing, just because like, that's what the people in my evangelical circles were really fixated on. So like like, the mechanics of the sex act. Like, yeah, really focused on that. And like, okay, this is unnatural, I guess. And it was sort of like a quasi Catholic teaching that also like doesn't believe in birth control. So it was a real cherry picking of things, (laughs) but in my circles, it was like, gays are bad and gross. And so I, it's just, it was more of a cultural belief, I think, than anything else, because it didn't feel wrong to me. That was, it went against my intuition and my spirit. Um, It just was so declared to be wrong that I couldn't resist that. Okay. Because that's hard for me to make sense of. And I have never heard anyone provide an adequate answer in terms of like, but really, why would it be a sin if there's no victim? But everyone sort of just goes with it. And people on our, like our audience was saying, why? Why did people, why did Christians focus on like gays and abortion? I was like, because loving your enemy is hard. <laughs> like that part of the theology is really difficult for everyone. So they would rather focus on this stuff that like doesn't really apply to them. That's a nice alternative for them than to say like, I have to love everyone. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I also think there's like, 
we just are underestimating how much like these issues have been used. Like the like evangelicals, I think, and and Christians are often the victims of people with like a political agenda and who wanted to sort of mm. evoke fear in their followers. And you've got to like, rat- you know, to... To mobilize people. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think like abortion and same-sex relationships just in, in gays happen to be the the ones who are chosen as scapegoats uh, to be against and to rally them. And I don't know why, but it's really sad because um, I think Jesus had such tenderness toward the most vulnerable and certainly like queer youth in those kinds of communities are just really vulnerable. So it's sad to see them being um, sort of discarded um, in the process of people sort of grabbing for power. Do you think that the reason that maybe some of your friends or your family decided to kind of cut you off was that they thought that by loving you anyway, that would be condoning it? I definitely think so. Because that's what they've been taught, right? Uh, Like there's a a verse in like Ezekiel or something maybe that says like, if the, you know, these people are living in sin and if you, whoever these people are uh, in Ezekiel, and it's like, (laughs) if they die and you haven't sort of confronted them and that you've gone along with their sin, their blood will be on your hands. So like they take these random verses. Right. But you're never talking about Ezekiel normally. (laughs) Yeah. No idea who these people were or what they were doing, but somehow it becomes about if they, if, you know, they love their sister and their daughter who's gay, they're going to, my blood will be on their hands and then they're culpable. And so that's just like major twistings of the Bible uh, to, for what, yeah. Do you think that there's a way to not, like, you seem so stable and lovely. I would be very bitter if I were in your shoes. I'm bitter anyway. I'm not even (laughs) in your shoes. But how do you avoid that or, or heal in a way that, you know, you're not the one in pain because other people are making these choices? It comes and goes in waves. Like sometimes I definitely have my moments and like flip out and vent. And yeah, I've also though, I've just done so much work in therapy and stuff and so much work going like, I don't want to give those people, those people already took so much of my life and my time and my energy, like decades of it. They took my twenties. I didn't like date or sleep with anybody or do anything in all of my twenties or to, you know, like teens, because I was like, just so driven by these communities and these people and these authority figures. So I'm like, I don't want to let them ruin my thirties and forties because I'm like spending time being bitter about what they told stole. I'd rather just go like live a full life and thrive and flourish. And I think that's the best argument anyway. Um, Like for us to just thrive. When, when you tell people now and you do in the book that you're still a believer a follower of Jesus, you identify as Christian. Why do you say you did that? Why didn't you throw the baby out with the bathwater? I'm really moved by, I'm really moved by Jesus. And I'm really moved by the overall spirit of Christianity, which is to cultivate love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, to grow in generosity. I need to be forgiven. There's so much that I, you know, I really need forgiveness. I want to be somebody who's able to forgive. Mm -hmm. And these are all things that like Christianity is a resource to help us grow into those kinds of ways of being and to embody more of that spirit. Um, So wherever Christianity and Christian communities are doing that work of justice and peace and growing in mercy, I want to be a part of that. And wherever people are using their faith and weaponizing it to cause harm, I don't want to be a part of that. So it's really just about like really the fruit of what I see in a community. It's very inspiring. I, I really admire you and I think you're a hero because it's not easy to do what you're doing, but it's so special. Thank you. One of the reasons why your book is so fascinating and your life is so fascinating is because it wasn't as if you had some sort of road to Damascus, like epiphany that all of a sudden you realize whatever. This was a really long road for you. And it took a lot of different phases and and looked different along the way. Whenever you were in the conversion therapy period of time, was there any joy? Was there uh, peace? Or was it all just fraught? I think this is one thing people don't understand is it's kind of similar to like an abusive relationship in many ways. Like mm. people stay in abusive relationship for decades sometimes because like in addition to maybe the harassment or violence, there's also tenderness Mm -hmm. and there's kindness and there's warmth and even love in some warped way. And there was so much that uh, I found a community of people who were just like me and maybe we didn't call ourselves queer and maybe we weren't able to really act out on our, you know, desires, but there was that sense of like, I'm not totally alone. And there was ways in which they offered us such grace. And like the leader of that ministry was really there for me um, in, in really in big moments and vulnerable moments. And so, yeah, I think people can really mess up and shaming you for who you are and also be really hospitable and giving you a place to stay and making, you know, warm meals for you every Sunday after church. So it was a real mixed bag. Do you think that any people in that community, the conversion therapy uh, group or your church growing up, think that now you're just doing the same thing in reverse? Like you're speaking out and now it's a different story, but maybe this one's the not true one. That's a great question. I think I've thought about this a lot um, because I think like, I remember when I was in those communities, people like Ricky, the executive director of the ministry I was in, he would be like, you know, they know the truth. They're just resisting it. They're resisting the truth. And I don't think they understand. There's not like a single moment in my life that I've been like, I wonder if I need, I wonder if I'm wrong. I wonder if like, I really had the truth when I was just like, self-harming and like living in total. Um, I see this as just like continuing to offer reflections. Like I've learned more. I know more now. I like learned some science and learned like, uh, have been able to see the long-term effects of this teaching over the last like 15, 20 years. And so 
I'm just continuing to offer reflections. And I don't think I have like the truth now. I think in five years, I'm going to disagree with things I believe now and like keep growing and keep, keep changing and keep sharing that with the world and being honest. It's not necessarily about having, being on the right side now. It's just like choosing to like integrate some of the wisdom I picked up along the way instead of resisting it to affirm preconceived notions that I had before. People like Ricky who have been in this a really long time and use themselves as an example of a success story of, of someone who used to be gay and is now saying they're straight. Um, like how do you think he really believes this? I think about this a lot. I think he, he has built his whole life since he was in his twenties on Mm. this belief and his whole community, his whole identity, all of his work is based on the belief that being gay is wrong and sinful and broken and that people can change. And so if he were to allow himself to evolve and maybe come to a different perspective on this, who would he be? Where would he find a sense of meaning? Where would he find community? And at the age of probably now late 50s, almost 60, I think is probably just such a scary, unbearable thought that he can't even let himself entertain that. He's just doubling down. And it comes at a cost. I can't even imagine to self-deny in that way. But like you said, when something becomes your identity and is embedded in every area of your life, I mean, that's very hard to unravel. It feels like survival. (sighs) To stay that way. Yeah, feels like just a basic sense of survival. The drive for community and identity is so strong. I don't think people understand, like you can't really come out and let yourself evolve and let yourself accept hard truths unless you feel like you have somewhere else to go. And he's at like a dead end. There is nowhere else. Really? Okay. So at the part of the journey, when you're about to start becoming your true self, you're transitioning out and you were uh, in pray away, you were in that, circle and Lisa Ling. And you said you felt like you were in the wrong side of the circle. At that point, you were still sort of representing the gay conversion movement. Was that a moment where you just, the light went on? And what does that feel like? That was one of the few light bulb moments. Because like you said, I didn't really have, like it was a long process. For me. <laughs> right. There was like lots of moments But that was the one where I was just like, these people are telling my story and they sound really angry. And I'm so scared of feeling that kind of anger, but I think they're just more honest with themselves than I am. And I, I can't participate in this any longer. And even though I was trying to change the organization from within, there was exodus from within, there was this real sense of I, I'm like, I appear to be on the red team and I'm on the blue team kind of thing. And it was, it was really scary. I cried the whole way back to my hotel and drove for 30 minutes in the wrong direction. Cause I was just like, what does this mean? Well, cause I'm, I mean, you had similarity to Ricky in terms of it being your identity. It was your livelihood. Um, it was more than just 
switching from one to the next? I mean, this caused a lot of change for you. Totally. When you sent that email to Wheaton, because you were the chaplain at Wheaton for a time, did they write back? Uh, Like your resignation. Oh, the resignation. Oh, no, they didn't respond. I never heard from them again. Um, I, I think, I think they're really, they're, they're very fear-based and very concerned about protecting and managing their image. And they quickly saw online that I had published that my beliefs and views had changed. So I think there was just like, probably went into like image management, narrative control. Um, Yeah. Wheaton's an interesting place. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. And it's, I think it's especially interesting because of that branding and how they really like this idea that they are high-minded and intellectual, um, scientifically motivated, the Ivy League of Christian schools, which is some oxymoronic, but still. LOL. Well, (laughs) well, um, but you kind of were risk a risk in that way to that image of like, we are not country bumpkins type of thing. I think that's, I think that was revealed in my year there because I think they were hiring me knowing we have like a broad range of constituents and Julie does represent where many of them want us to go. And maybe there's a way to sort of like integrate gay people without us having to go all the way and like lose our values completely. But then once they started taking those little baby steps and like putting their toes in the water, they heard from their more conservative constituents with more money, like absolutely not. And the president would send me letters like that he received where people were like, would you hire someone who struggles with pedophilia to work with like students who are like crazy stuff? And I think he was just like, whoop, we made the wrong decision. We got to go back and we got to show that we're like fighting yeah. a good fight to like win Like culture. damage control. Yeah. Didn't you feel used? Oh, big time. Yeah. Big time. Especially by like Gabe Lyons and the folks at Q saying so explicitly, like, if I stand up and say gay people need to be cel- celibate to be holy, I sound like a bigot because I'm a straight white man. It has more power coming from you. It's like, whoa, like you just put it out there. Like right. you are actively using me as a mouthpiece. Like that is what you're doing. And it was really jarring to see them being so honest about those calculations. If you were to have embraced this, um, a straight lifestyle, but you still said like, I'm still who I was. I'm still attracted to women, but I'm going to marry some dude and whatever, have babies or whatever. They would think that that's ethical. Like they wouldn't think that's lying or. No, they would be like, um, this is, she's pursuing holiness. Like, this is right. This is right. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, even being immersed in it and studying it all these years, it's still shocking to hear you say that. Totally. I would be back in good graces with my family. I could like, yeah, be a part of evangelical churches. That for me was the most difficult thing to read about your book was that like, like you, they, your family wouldn't even ask you about your life. Um, like 
you were just an accessory to their lives and they were fine with that. And you said like, can you really love someone you don't even know? Like they yeah. didn't even know you really. Yeah. And That's just so trauma. There's so much fear. Yeah. What does your life look like now? So now I have a very full life. I have lots of friends who are still Christian and who still, who like completely are just like, obviously gay people are awesome and beautiful. And, um, I married, I married the first person I started dating after I left Wheaton, um, Amanda Height. And she is like amazing. Um, she's gorgeous and like the most generous person I've ever met in my life. We recently separated after six years together, which has been, that's been hard, but it's also been one of the sweetest things I've, it's, it's been one of the most healing things I've ever gone through because it's the first time I've gone through like a really big personal transition and change and not lost the people I love most, but like, that wow. she's been willing to get in it with me and really see and understand like just how we were in such different places and that like, this is what I need and this is what we need. And to be like, okay, well, we're going to be family in a new way now. And we're like co-parenting our cats and you know, hang part. out. we hang out every week and we, you know, are, are able to just like really like have such a deep love on the other side of what is, can be such a painful thing. And so there's just ways in which like the, the queer community, we, I think we've known such loss that we are able to, to stick with each other and to create chosen families in ways that are really rare and really beautiful. So my life is complicated. It's not a fairy tale. And it's also a place where I can show up as my full self and be loved in deeper ways than I knew possible. And it's just really healing. And um, I'm really grateful. I'm grateful for you because that's that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that the the dissolution of that relationship was informed by the complicated history that you have had? Yeah. Big How time. could it not, right? Big time. It mainly just that I didn't know I had never dated. I had yeah. never had, you know, like she was, she's like eight years older than me. She'd had like all kinds of experiences. She knew who she was and what she wanted when we met. And I just had no idea. And so I think like, I knew I loved her. I knew she was so awesome and amazing, but I also just needed to go through some stuff. Like I was like super, hadn't gone through any of the basic normal, like sexual relational, relational development stuff. And so I think once we got into it, I was just like, oh, wow. There are all these like other questions I hadn't considered and all these different kinds of connections that I hadn't considered. And I really need that time of like exploring who I am and what different relationships are out there uh, before I can settle down with somebody for the rest of my life, even if the person I chose is awesome. And so uh, I, it's, I'm really, really impressed and moved by Amanda for getting that and understanding that and, and sort of like, seeing that that would be best. Um, so yeah. Do you think that the people that are no longer in your life, like Ricky and some of your family members, that that's just the end of the story? Or do you think that there's another act coming up? 
I hope not. And as a Christian, I have to believe that redemption is possible and that they, I've changed. Like people can really change and I have to believe that they can change. And it's hard to hold on to that for people that I have spent like 15 years reaching out to who still haven't moved. And I am going to keep holding out that hope with boundaries, (laughs) Um, you know, not with, I'm not going to let them walk on me, but I am going to keep hoping uh, because I would really love to see healing on the other side of those. I'd love to see those relationships mended. We ask one question of everybody at the end, which is, if you have a car, what do you keep in the trunk of your car? I don't have a car. I (laughs) fill my car when I move to DC. (laughs) What I used to keep in it was like running shoes, like maybe a change of clothes in case I want to go to the gym. Do you have like a bag that you carry, a backpack or a purse or anything? I do. What's in there? What's in there? That's a that's a good question. Um, tampons, tampons, <laughs> masks, extra masks, a wallet, gum. I am like a compulsive gum chewer. What kind? Uh, Orbit, Orbit okay. pepper peppermint. Yeah, I'll have and to try that. My God, it's great. Yeah, I recommend. Well, you're off the hook, but I really hope all of our listeners will read your book, Out Love, A Queer Christian Survival Story. It's beautiful. You really are a hero and you're so special and loved. And I hope you feel it. Thank you, Susie. I mean it. Really sweet. Thank you so much. You're the best. This is this conversation is like a big hug. um, And I received that. It means a lot. 